If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we have the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where experts respond to popular search queries and questions from you on some of history's biggest subjects. Today we're talking all things Shakespeare, and our expert is Paul Edmondson, Head of Research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and the co-editor of a new edition of Shakespearean Sonnets, called All the Sonnets of Shakespeare. So thanks so much for joining me. We've got loads of questions in on Shakespeare. We've got some from our followers on social media, from Facebook and Twitter. And we also have some of the most popular things that people search for in search engines online. So I think a couple of those ones would be good to start us off. First of all, when was Shakespeare born? And secondly, where did he live? Well, they're not straightforward questions, of course, but I shall be I shall be brief. 23rd of April, 1564. Baptised, 26th of April, 1564. How do we know this? Well, the baptism record exists. We don't have birth certificates in that period. It's all baptism records. But on his epitaph in Holy Trinity Church, it says that he died on the 23rd of April, 1616, aged 53, which suggests that that was the beginning of his 53rd year, which means that he died on his birthday, the 23rd of April. Well, he lived in the house on Henley Street, which has traditionally been called Shakespeare's birthplace. And his father lived there from 1552 and his mother and family. He had two sisters who predeceased him. He was the oldest surviving child. 
And that's the house that he took possession of in 1601 on the death of his father and allowed his sister's family to live in part of it as their descendants continue to do until the first part of the 19th century. So next up we have how many plays, poems and sonnets did Shakespeare write? How many plays did he write? Well, a traditional answer is 37. It's 38 if you include The Two Noble Kinsmen. If you include the collaborative plays Edward III and The Book of Sir Thomas More, that takes us up to 40 plays. If you include the two lost plays, Cardinio and Love's Labours One, takes us up to 42. And if you include the six plays that he's believed now to have been a collaborator within, mainly by the work of other people, but with a hand in, then that adds another six. So it might be as many as 48 plays. 154 sonnets published in 1609. Seven epitaphs are attributed to him in various churches. Three poems possibly attributable to him from The Passionate Pilgrim a poem called Shall I Die? That's another four poems. And then, of course, the two long narrative poems, Venus and Adonis and Lucrece, which were especially famous and popular in his lifetime. I think even from that question, we'll have alarm bells ringing in people's heads where they're saying, lost plays, tell us more. So we'll look at that a bit later. But let's um, stick with this vein at the moment. Another question that a lot of people have searched for online is, how many words did Shakespeare invent? I don't know whether you have a number here, but maybe you could just give us a sense of some of those words. Well, I'm going to give you now what feels like a traditional answer and then explain why it's about to be bettered. 1,700 words are believed to be inventions by Shakespeare, about half of which survive in modern-day usage. Words such as assassination, accommodation, critic obscene, traditional, varied. And his lexicon was obviously much bigger. The number of words, and again, it depends how you count them, could be as many as 20,000 or between 17 and 20,000. Here I look to the excellent work of Professor David Crystal, who's an expert in the English language. But these answers, Ellie, I think are about to be bettered because of a project funded by the British Academy of the University of Lancaster. And two scholars there, Jonathan Culpepper and Jonathan Hope, are working again on what we call Shakespeare's neologisms, the the words that he invented. Because as they've pointed out, that figure 1,700 relates to references in the Oxford English Dictionary, which cite Shakespeare as the earliest usage and which might be wrong. So I'm looking forward to the fruits of that research. But yeah, watch that space. That 1,700 might, I suspect it will reduce. Even if it does reduce, though, it's a staggering amount of words for one person to add to the English language. As David Uh, Crystal says, no other author matches these impressive figures. You know, he's he's peerless still. (laughs) um, So now I think we'll turn to a few questions from social media. The first couple I have are about biography, and then we might look at Shakespeare's work a bit more. Sarsard242 on Twitter asked um, a couple of questions about Shakespeare's kind of early life, uh, two of which were, what was his education like? I don't know how much we know about that. And also, how did he become a playwright in the first place? Shakespeare was a beneficiary, as his many of his generation were, of the, as it were, fairly recently reinvented grammar school system by Edward VI. And there was a grammar school which was founded in 1553 in Stratford-upon-Avon. The education that it provided was free for all boys in the town, uh, as long as, as it were, your parents could afford to spare you from working at home. Uh, So it's 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 believed that Shakespeare went there because why wouldn't he, as son of the of the 
local bailiff mayor john shakespeare who was uh, aspiring uh, as a as a prominent person in the town but it was available to all boys in the town and probably they stayed there until they were like 12 13 14 you, there was no actual fixed rule when you left but writ large across the corpus of work is a grammar school education his mind was steeped in latin the shaping of his mind was rhetorical, how to put an argument together using classical examples. It taught those young boys to think, to be powerful with language, and that's what he left school with. And it's been demonstrated that you don't need a university education in order to have written the complete works of Shakespeare. Grammar school education in the classics would have done it. Also some Greek in there as well. But we don't know how much the syllabuses don't survive. But we do have a sense of uh, the kinds of things they were using, like William Lilly's Latin grammar, for example. And of course, we know a little bit about this through the uh, longer established schools like Winchester and Eton College. So a classical education. And emerging from that, uh, favorite his favourite writer Ovid, the Roman writer Ovid, and his, his works are often referring, alluding to Ovid's metamorphoses, especially. Lucrece is based on a story in Ovid's historical chronicles, the Fasti. So an important writer for Shakespeare that he learned about at school. How did he become an actor? Well, in a way, that's a question about how did he go to London? Because that's where uh, the acting was taking place. Except he may have had his first inspiration for the theatre when his father was bailiff or mayor of Stratford-upon-Avon. He was five years old. John Shakespeare was the first town official ever to pay from the town purse, as it were, monies to two professional troops of actors who came to the town, were invited to come to the town when he was bailiff and when Shakespeare was five years old. So I like to imagine the young Shakespeare sitting on his father's knee at this great event for Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, a couple of people asked about Shakespeare's marriage. So to pick up on one of those, at Jem Pierce on Twitter asked, um, what was his relationship with Anne Hathaway really like, and did he have mistresses in London? Well, we can assume that it was a good marriage because they had, they, well, they had three children. It was a, At least it was a dutiful marriage. But then uh, they had to marry because uh, she was she was pregnant before marriage and they were married by special license so william was just 18 she was 26 so it was a forced marriage it was a very unusual situation for a young lad of 18 remember he's still a lad because he came of age in, in 20, uh, 21 in those days uh, to to have to marry in stratford upon avon so it was a, something of a, a scandal really but they had a child susanna and then they went on to have twins hamlet and judith Shakespeare buys a great house, new place in the centre of Stratford in 1597. It's a big family home. Anne runs it. Anne is the, the, the person who's managing quite an important amount of activity and, and household stuff in new place. And Shakespeare seems to be spending time between Stratford and London. Did he have mistresses? The only surviving anecdote directly relating to Shakespeare's personal life is about him seeing a prostitute which comes from the diary of John Manningham, who was at the Middle Temple. And he writes about Shakespeare overhearing Richard Burbage making an appointment with a prostitute after she's seen him play Richard III. And he gets there before Burbage arrives. And Burbage says, please uh, tell her that Richard III is at the door. And Shakespeare sends a reply that William the Conqueror came before Richard III. That's the only story we know about his personal life. And then we have Shakespeare's sonnets, which uh, talk about my mistress, 
My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, sonnet 130. There's a bisexual love triangle. Uh, three of them mentioned in Shakespeare's sonnets, maybe with different people, maybe with the same man and woman. Sonnet 144, two loves I have of comfort and despair that like two spirits suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit a woman coloured ill. So there's reason to suppose that he did have mistresses and this is probably not unusual for marriages of that period. It's intriguing stuff, isn't it, when you try and um, unpick biography from from art quite often. Um, and on that kind of theme of family, Chris Rowe 999 um, asked, can you tell us more about his children? Well, Susanna, the eldest, married a local physician, John Hall, and seems to have helped him very much with his medical practice. Her epitaph says that she um, administered comforts cordial as a physician's wife, that she was witty above her sex, that she was wise to salvation. This is Shakespeare's daughter. Uh, Judith lived to a ripe old age, into her 60s, and we don't know very much about her. She married Thomas Quiney, and she had three children, all of whom died in infancy. It's very touching, they named the first child Shakespeare, Shakespeare Quiney, after the, her famous father. And Hamlet died when he was, Judith's twin, died when he was 11 years old in 1596. So now I have a few questions about the experience of seeing Shakespeare's plays, for example, and um, how his work was received at the time. Um, so Ado Mohammed, who uh, got in contact on Facebook, he asked a really good question, actually, which is how famous or popular was Shakespeare during his lifetime compared to the modern status that he has today as the foremost English play playwright? Well, if we, as we tend to do today, equate fame sometimes with wealth, Shakespeare was very wealthy because of his art, um, because he owned shares in the theatre company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which became the King's Men, and he owned shares in the Globe, therefore box office receipts, and he owned shares in the Blackfriars Theatre. And he's investing huge sums of money in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. He spends £320 and buys 107 acres of land in 1602. He spends £440 in 1605 for a share of the tithes, which would have been an annual income for him. His epitaph in Holy Trinity Church says his name doth deck his tomb far more than cost. There are tributes to him as a famous writer at the beginning of the collected play edition, Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, published in 1623, which we now know as the first folio. He was much admired by his contemporaries. He was loved by Ben Jonson, posthumously referring to him as loving him this side, idolatry, as well as criticising Shakespeare for some imperfections, according to Jonson. So it's fair to say that he was famous in his lifetime and he knew, he knew that he was very good at what he did. And of course, then the fame increases posthumously. So next up, we have a question from Lavie Marie, which is, so the original question is, uh, were the less fortunate able to read his works? But I might expand that to say, were the less fortunate able to access his work in any way? 
Well, of course, it depends what we mean by less fortunate. If you could spend, if you could spend a penny, then you could attend as a groundling and watch one of the plays at the Globe Theatre, or you might see the Lord Chamberlain's men or the King's men on tour when they came round to your town or village, as they often did, especially during times of plague. How much would a penny have been then? Would it have been an extravagance, or would it have been a daily expense? Mm-hmm. I think you could buy a loaf of bed bread for a penny. So it's like, do you want bread or do you want a Hamlet? But so that's the way that most people would have interacted with his work, would be seeing it performed. Is that right? Yes. I mean, there were some publications, about half the plays were published uh, during his lifetime. The other half didn't appear until that collected works of 1623. But if by less fortunate we mean those who who are, are illiterate... Then, they, then the publication of the plays, which they'd have either had to borrow or buy, may not have been available to them. Um, and another question from Lavie Marie is, what was it like to view one of Shakespeare's plays at the Globe Theatre? I mean, we could probably talk about this for 45 minutes, couldn't oh, we? Do you know, Ellie, if we could go back just for 20 seconds and be part of that crowd, I think we'd be struck by the smell. I think we'd be struck by the squeezing together of the crowd we'd be thinking gosh this isn't safe I feel a bit frightened because people really packed in at the globe maybe 3,000 spectators at a time as a comparison I think the the modern day globe on on the bank side holds about 1,500 at full capacity so twice as many as as currently feel that they're in there in the modern day globe I, I think we'd have been struck by the beautiful costumes on stage. It would have looked like we were watching aristocrats often and people of high social status showing these wonderful costumes, often which came from the wardrobes of aristocrats or patrons of theatre companies. Um, it would have felt like a great event. It's been described as perhaps feeling as though you were part of all the excitement of a modern-day football match. You'd have been you know, rooting for the story. I mean, you have to imagine you know, not knowing anything about Hamlet and turning up and seeing it for the first time, hearing perhaps a little bit about the reputation of Richard III, that he's going to be like murdering his way to the crown, and then the pleasure of seeing that as part of the story, and Richard almost like a stand-up comedian telling you what he's going to do and then audaciously achieving it. You know, these are the sorts of things we have to remember. Also, that no, there were no women on stage Only boys played female roles, which is very difficult for us to imagine. But the voices broke later. So, you know, an 18-year-old maybe could have played Cleopatra with an unbroken voice or Lady Macbeth, for example, these great female roles that we think of now. So it would have felt very unusual to us. And one of the lovely challenges and delights of thinking about Shakespeare's plays and performance are factoring in these very big cultural differences to us now. And from what you described there, it sounds like there'd be in a degree more audience participation than you might see in a theatre today. Well, maybe. And I think that's because of the excitement of the story and the wonder of the new. It's a fairly new you know, medium. It's still settling down and finding its feet. So every play is a sort of experiment that you go to. You know, what next? What visual effects are they going to use? Are we going to have sound effects like the canon's uh, which went off during a performance of Henry VIII, All is True, and set fire to the Globe Theatre in June 1613. So you never knew what was coming. But I think they were good listeners. So I, I want to not in any way put into people's minds that they were 
interactively throwing rotten tomatoes and that kind of thing. Maybe some of that occasionally went on and maybe those people were removed for for disturbing other people's enjoyments because the evidence suggests that they were good listeners. An audience went to listen audio um, and the length of some of these plays and some of the speeches within the plays suggests that once those actors were speaking, there was a hush in the auditorium and people were captivated. So now let's talk a little bit about some of the influences um, and inspirations behind Shakespeare. So Noel Cox on on Facebook asked, is it true that many of Shakespeare's plays were copied or heavily influenced by earlier works from other writers? The question is perhaps a bit about Shakespeare's originality. It's not that he's taking other people's uh, plays, although he, he uses them as sources and then adapts them. So, for example, one play that he takes and adapts is by Plautus, the Roman writer, called the Menechmi, which Shakespeare really enhances and changes as the comedy of errors. But it's basically the Menechmi by Plautus. Um, He's using, of course, other literary sources. He has to find the stories from somewhere. And then his genius is how he then decides to retell that story and body it forth with actors and props and scenic locations. Um, And three of his plays don't seem to have obvious literary sources. Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labour's Lost and The Tempest. And of course, when Shakespeare's telling any story, we can look at how he's departing from his source and work out how his own mind is interacting with the story, changing it, adapting it, what he's putting into it, what he's leaving out. And that all becomes very revealing in terms of his own uh, artistic project. Well, that would lead me on to another question from Laura Bellis. And she asked, what do we know about how Shakespeare researched historical information before he wrote plays like Richard III or Macbeth, where real people were represented? Well, he would have had two big books next to him in order to write those plays. Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland and Ireland, first published in 1577 when Shakespeare's 13. Great history book. Edward Hall's The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families, Lancaster and York, published in 1542. And especially for Richard III, he'd have had Sir Thomas More's History of Richard III um, available to him. So he was a researcher before he put pen to paper each play was a research project to him. He, he read around the subject. He thought about it. He went to several sources for, 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 the play, for each play. But these books we know he was using because uh, the lives of the, all the English kings are in there. And Hollinshed includes the lives of King Lear, Macbeth and Cymbeline, all plays by Shakespeare, of course. I think that um, the idea of Shakespeare as a researcher is quite interesting and a different one to, I think, for example, the Shakespearean love image that people might have of him just sitting down with a quill and coming up with something off the top of his head. It's actually a lot more work involved than that. A lot more work involved. But of course, obviously, he wrote the different plays at different speeds and some are more literary than others. A, a play that he seems to have written at speed and which I think is quintessentially Shakespearean, it's one of my favourites, is The Merry Wives of Windsor. And although there's a you know literary source for it, uh, he's having, I think, a, a great deal of fun writing The Merry Wives of Windsor in the same way that one supposes Charles Dickens is with Nicholas Nickleby. So to just kind of turn my last question on its head a bit, 
Um, I've got another one from Adam Morrison, which is how much were Shakespeare's plays influenced by contemporary events and themes? And he's given um, some examples here. So he said, such as the threat of a Spanish invasion or Elizabeth's concerns about her reign. Can we see those things echoed in Shakespeare's plays? Well, we can. And, you know, the more we go searching for them, the more we'll find them. I mean, just to give you two other examples, Elizabeth I, of course, having to deal very carefully with her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, whose claim for the English throne was extremely strong. And this haunts her through much of her reign. So their cousins vying for a crown. This is exactly what we see in Shakespeare's play, King John, Prince Arthur versus King John himself, and also Richard II, the cousins Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke. So that's just another example of how, you know, we can find within the plays uh, contemporary events and concerns. And listeners might like to know that you and I are speaking on the 5th of November, Gunpowder Treason and Plot, Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night. And Macbeth is often thought to be, as it were, the gunpowder play because of allusions to the plot in the script. Uh, Not least when we think about Macbeth's own anxieties in committing an act of terrorism and treason against King Duncan. And Shakespeare, is it, as it were, is almost presenting a terrorist whose conscience pricks him in that play. That's what, that's what the play's main dramatic interest is. Creating these contemporary parallels was really a risk at the time. And, and that's something that um, D.L. Withers asked about on Twitter, who said, um, how close to the wind did Shakespeare sail? What was his riskiest play? Shakespeare is a progressive writer, but he's also a safe one. He doesn't land in trouble. He doesn't get himself into trouble as many of his contemporaries did for their politically sensitive hot material, which seemed really to be stirring things up. But he does have, he does, as it were, sail pretty close to the wind, not necessarily on his own bat, but from what other people do with his work. So just to um, reflect on Richard II and how that shows the king being deposed, and how Richard II was performed on the eve of Essex, the Earl of Essex's attempt to unsettle Elizabeth. And this did get Shakespeare's theatre company into trouble, still called the Lord Chamberlain's men, and one of them, Augustine Phillips, had to give evidence to the Privy Council. So that's, that's his closest brush through his company, through his play having been performed, uh, that that I think we can say he was sailing pretty close to the wind. But he remained safe. He wasn't courting controversy, but he was using controversial material in the plays as, as part of his entertainment sources. Um, leading on from that, um, Steph Storer asked, what was Shakespeare's relationship with Elizabeth I? Do we know if she had any influence on his writing? Well... He founded the Lord Chamberlain's company with the patron from Elizabeth's court, the Lord the Lord Chamberlain. Um, and therefore, every play that he writes for that company was written really for the court, for Elizabeth I's own viewing, for the Lord Chamberlain's own viewing. So all of the performances in the London theatres were, as it were, dress rehearsals for the true purpose of the company, which was to perform at court usually over the Christmas season. If you go to the plays and think about 
the years when they were written, during the reign of Elizabeth, he writes 18 plays from becoming Lord Chamberlain's men until her death, which is a significant number. And when you count the number of performances at court by the two companies that he was associated with, the Lord Chamberlain's men, which then became the King's men, from 1594 to Shakespeare's death in 1616, it's 170 times they perform before the monarchs. So this is somebody who's very adept at, at, at appearing in the highest possible social echelon of the day. So Elizabeth I and then James I and Six of Scotland would have been very aware of the name William Shakespeare. Definitely. And probably loved it and probably looking forward to the next play by him. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I like The Winter's Tale. I think it's a miracle of a play. I love the passage of time, 16 years between the first half and the second half. I love the feeling of forgiveness towards the end. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Something that always comes up when you ask people for questions about Shakespeare are the almost kind of simmering conspiracy theories that surround him um, and whether he, in fact, was the person that wrote all the plays. So, Lavie Marie did ask... Why are some people still questioning whether Shakespeare really wrote his own plays? Are there any merits 
in the accusations. There are no merits in the accusation. I'm always surprised at these accusations because there's so much evidence that Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon wrote the plays and the poems in the first place. You have to disprove every one of those pieces of evidence before you can start saying, oh, well, there's evidence for somebody else. There's never any evidence for anybody else apart from somebody saying, well, I think it was so-and-so. And this has been going on only since the middle of the 19th century when conspiracy theories perhaps connected to the rise of uh, detective fiction uh, were were conflating around uh, Victorians' interests in points of origin, uh, theories of evolution and so on. Shakespeare is a great point of origin for this great body of work. Let's question it. Let's unsettle it. So it's something that's stuck. Uh, it's something I've been much concerned with in recent times, as long as i worked at the Birthplace Trust, really. And we've made available several resources for people to find out more about this. And they're free. And one of them's called 60 Minutes with Shakespeare. And one of them's called Shakespeare Bites Back. Bites, B-I-T-E-S, like a, like a lion. And that's a free ebook of 7,000 words that I co-authored with Stanley Wells. It'll tell you everything you need to know about this issue. Um, why do you think that people are so convinced by these ideas then that Shakespeare didn't write all his plays do you think it's because he is so, you know such a towering figure and as we as we discussed at the start wrote so much stuff that has gone down in you know the canon of English literature that people just think one man couldn't have done all that um yes and they and they you know that's that's probably part of it isn't it of course where these theories start from is they they have to assume if it's going to be somebody else that Shakespeare's writing, that that's somebody else's writing in a bubble, that they're, they're, they're completely secret and it, it requires them to point out who this other person might be if it's not Shakespeare. Well, plays weren't, plays weren't written like that in the period. It's a nonsense. People were always collaborating with each other. I love what Dame Janet Sussman says on this subject, that actors can't keep secrets. And had it been somebody else, we would have known. You know, it's just, it, it, it's... It's more suspicious to me that this question wasn't asked until the middle of the 19th century than the question itself. Um, I want to ask you a bit more specifically about the collaboration you mentioned there, because Joshua Yeaton on Facebook, he, he makes quite a, a good kind of more, modern parallel that I enjoy. So he said, I've heard that playwriting was a some, somewhat collaborative effort in Shakespeare's time. Was this a bit more like Saturday Night Live or Monty Python than a lone genius writing brilliantly? What would you say to that? Well, Shakespeare's artistic output suggests both. It suggests that he collaborated at the beginning and the end of his career, but for the, the meat of it, from 1594 onwards, when he becomes the main playwright for the Lord Chamberlain's Men, he is the main author of those works. So the collaborative works, if we think about Shakespeare working with others, include the Henry VI plays, Titus Andronicus, Timon of Athens... Henry VIII, All is True with John Fletcher, The Two Noble Kinsmen with John Fletcher, The Lost Play Cardinio with John Fletcher, and Measure for Measure and Macbeth suggest they have elements of adaptation by Thomas Middleton. So he's, he's not entirely a lone genius. Collaboration was the default way of writing plays for the, his contemporaries, and Shakespeare's part of that world. So you mentioned the, the Lost Plays. Hamish Ross on Facebook did ask, uh, what can you tell us about these lost plays? So the lost plays include uh, Cardinio, which we know about because it was mentioned in 1653 in the Stationers' Register, as a play by John Fletcher and William Shakespeare. 
the play itself is lost, but there's a play from the 18th century by Louis Theobald called Double Falsehood or the Distressed Lovers, which purports to be an adaptation of Cardinio. So if we go looking for Cardinio, we have to take Double Falsehood very seriously. And there have been various attempts to reconstruct Cardinio in recent times. The RSC produced a fine production of Reconstruction of Cardinio, directed by Gregory Doran a few years ago. Another lost play is Love's Labours One, which was mentioned by Francis Mears, along with other Shakespeare plays, in his book Pallidus Tamia from 1598. So we know it existed as a Shakespeare play. And then in 1953, mention of it was found in a a book list, which was part of a book from 1637-8, but obviously a much earlier list, it seems, listing Love's Labours One with some other plays of the period, not all by Shakespeare, but some by Shakespeare, which corroborates Francis Mears' 1598 mention. We don't know anything about it at all, just the title. There are many lost plays of the period. It's not in any way surprising that uh, two of Shakespeare's should be lost. Some people have speculated that it's an alternative title for another Shakespeare comedy, which the RSC put over when they performed Much Do About Nothing as a sequel to Love's Labour's Lost and called Much Do About Nothing Love's Labour's One, which was a clever thing to do, if not entirely convincing. <laughs> oh, can you imagine if they if somebody found uh, the lost manuscript of Cardinio? Still might turn up. <laughs> and just think how think how interesting it would be. It would maybe may, may a lost Shakespearean comedy. If only. Um, so actually, I have one more question here. Another one from Lavi Marie, um, which is: Did Shakespeare make known his own favourite play that he wrote, or one that he liked least? It's a very interesting question. I. I don't I don't know. I mean, how can we say? One answer might be to look at the plays that Shakespeare most revised that he went back to. Does that suggest that he liked them or that he was less happy with them? What so, are for some example, of the plays he most revised? Well, I mean, I'm thinking about the revisions of King Lear, for example, between the quarto text and the folio text, which are revealing about how he works and maybe how things were treated in rehearsal once the actors started to really work with the with the language and the and the scenes hamlet is another play which includes uh, some revision uh, but many of them do uh, there are there are alternative versions of 18 of shakespeare's plays so that maybe doesn't help us i think you know if i were to talk if i were to answer this creatively and entirely emotionally i'd say midsummer night's dream was probably one of his favourite plays because it's so finished and lyrical and different registers of speech in that play. And I I like to think he was writing it with his own children in mind because of its captivation of the with the, about the imagination and the fairy kingdom and so on and magic. And the, the humour of that play is so resonant, isn't it? So it's such a great success with audiences, Midsummer Night's Dream, every time it's performed that I... I think it might be one among Shakespeare's favourites. Perhaps among his least favourites, well, this is it subjectively. You know, what, what's the most boring play by Shakespeare? What's the hardest play by Shakespeare? So we might want to mention, for example, Timon of Athens in that, towards the bottom of that list. There are, reasons, there are great reasons for staging Timon of Athens, especially into the 21st century, uh, because it's, it's been put over as a play about the financial crisis and what that does to the individual and... Uh, borrowing and credit and so on. So these answers would be different if you asked somebody that same question in 100 years' time, perhaps. 
Mm-hmm. And before I um, ask my last question, I'm going to throw in one of my own, um, which is what is your favourite Shakespeare play? I like The Winter's Tale. I think it's a miracle of a play. I love the passage of time, 16 years between the first half and the second half. I love the feeling of forgiveness towards the end. There's often not a dry eye in the house at a performance of The Winter's Tale towards the end. I remember seeing it here, directed by Gregory Doran in 1998-99. And a friend of mine, a Shakespeare scholar, Robert Smallwood, in tears at the end, uh, staggering up the aisle at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, grabbing me by the arm and saying, you can keep your Hamlets, you can keep your Othellos, give me the winter's tale any day. And I thought, Robert, I know exactly how you feel. So it, it's become a play that's very important to me, the winter's tale. But of course, when you ask that question, I want to say a rush of about nine titles all at once, Hamlet, King Lear, As You Like It, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Twelfth Night or What You Will, etc., etc. You can have a different one for every day of the week. You could, Ellie. Yes, thank you. (laughs) How reassuring. (laughs) And so finally, um, I've just got one kind of concluding question, which is one of the most searched for terms um, on the internet, which I think is worth reiterating, which is why is Shakespeare important? Well, he's important because he's become important. So he's he's undeniable culturally. But you know, what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare is a slightly different question, isn't it? Um, he's important because he combines intellectual rigour with entertainment. Um, he's politically adaptable, as he's pr- been proved to be over the centuries, whether that's Janet Sussman doing a production of Othello at the height of apartheid in Johannesburg in 1989, or whether that's Corinne Jaber's Love's Labour's Lost in Kabul in 2005, the first time women appeared on stage for 30 years. You know, I'm reminded about what Ray Fiennes said in light of his, his excellent film version of Coriolanus in 2011. He said, Shakespeare's always questioning order, especially the right to rule. The stage spectacle holds its own. The stories hold their own. They speak especially to dysfunctional families across different cultures. There are the extremes of emotion poetically and powerfully articulated across the work. This is what resonates with Shakespeare. It's poetry as well as drama. It's memorably lyrical. You're reading a play, you're seeing a play, and suddenly the language takes off and becomes like an operatic aria. Think of Viola's Willow Cabin speech in Act one scene five of Twelfth Night or What You Will. It's beautiful. Call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantons of contemned love and sing them loud, even in the dead of night. We make Shakespeare into our own image, and we love doing that, and he seems to be especially pliable for us to do so. And yet he can be very direct and simple as a playwright and indeed as a poet. I do love nothing in the world so well as you. Is not that strange, says Benedict to Beatrice. Bear with my weakness. My old brain is troubled, says Prospero to Miranda in The Tempest. No one owns Shakespeare. Many people think they do, but no one owns him. But he is somebody who will take what we bring to him, transform it, help us to think it through and give it back to us. That was Paul Edmondson. Paul's latest book, All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, co-edited with Stanley Wells, was published this September by Cambridge University Press. 
And if you enjoyed Paul's renditions of Shakespeare that you heard in this podcast, he's also been uploading short readings from some of the Bard's best work every day during lockdown. You can hear those on SoundCloud and Twitter. Just search for Paul underscore Edmondson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Catherine Clay discussing resistance to the Nazi regime. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.